Hey gang, it's Harold, and here's another podcast. I'm going to use this forum to share my thoughts about the games I play and the people I meet. We'll experiment and work to find some interesting content. I look forward to your thoughts, comments, and ideas. This podcast is singularly composed of an interview with designer Jack Green. We'll discuss his upcoming design, Bear Flag Republic. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to your feedback. Jack Green is one of my favorite people in the business of designing war games. Despite delivering lectures to me about the bankruptcy of capitalism, Jack's been a positive influence on me as a role model for kindness, positive disposition, and just being fun to be around. His perspective on the hobby frequently opens my eyes as he talks about matters of power, diversity, and career when those discussions don't come very easily. Jack graduated from Whitman College, class of 71, majoring in history. Eleven short years later, he received his first Charles S. Roberts Award for his design, Bismarck II. Jack was later inducted into the Charles S. Roberts Hall of Fame for his powerful portfolio of naval conflict simulations. Jack wrote a number of books on topics around World War II. His company, Quarterdeck Games, published Iron Bottom Sound, Destroyer Captain, Norway 1940, as well as other titles. The next game for Jack will be the much-anticipated Bear Flag Republic, published by One Small Step Games. Bear Flag Republic is a card-enhanced game for two players, based on California in 1846 and 1847, at the time of the Mexican-American War. We'll start the interview with a question on how Jack decided to pursue Bear Flag Republic. Part of it is just simply living in California and having been to not all of them by any means, but some of the sites. So like when I lived in San Diego in the 70s and I worked for the March of Dimes, I remember going by uh, San Pasquale uh, Battlefield on more than one occasion and stopping in and, and seeing it. And then um, to be quite honest with you, I guess it was primarily I got started reading up on the Mexican-American War, and I was actually thinking of possibly doing a game on the Battle of Monterey. And, mm -hmm. and as I got into it further and further, I started looking at uh, California history. And uh, uh, as far as in terms of uh, uh, the Mexican-American War, 
And at a certain point, I actually contacted Joel Toppin. And in large part because he'd recently done the Navajo Wars. And I kind of bounced it off his head if he thought I should try to pursue this project. And so actually the game is dedicated in part to Joel because he got right back to me and said, you should do it, Jack. And with the stuff that I normally do when I do a game, I just read incredibly intensely on it. And, and fortunately for, for California, the Mexican-American War, if you read about, oh, I'd say 24 books, um, you pretty much exhausted the topic as far as in English. And I even managed to get a hold of a couple of translated uh, uh, Mexican slash in Spanish accounts that had been, well, that were in English. So I think Pico's, uh, there's a book on uh, Pico's uh, autobiography, I think, is uh, available. Who was the last governor, and stayed on, by the way. And actually, if my memory serves me right, he and uh, Vallejo, General Vallejo, both uh, were involved in the Constitutional Convention to make California a state in 1850. So it's kind of funny how our adversaries became uh, American citizens in some cases. The, uh, but uh, anyway, I, I decided I wanted to do a game that uh, exemplified my philosophy uh, in the uh, year 2015 and on of a large map, not many game counters, relatively simple rules, which is very difficult for me because I always come up with so many nickel and dime rules. And, uh, and, and, and people have always said, Jack, you have too many game tables. And of course, the older we get, I think we want to have simpler games. But um, it's like looking at, uh, I was, as I mentioned to you, Harold, I was proofing um, the game counters to uh, MacArthur, The Road to Bataan for Compass Games as a, a magazine game. And I'd have my old copy uh, that came from the Wargamer out. And then at my age, with my eyes, and there's many people like me in our hobby at this point, it was really difficult to read a lot of the, the information on the game counters on the old, in, in the old game. And one of the things that was really nice about Compass in that regards, and I know we're going off on a tangent here, but the counters are a little bit bigger than they were back in you know the 80s when the MacArthur first came out. And um, the artist, who's a, a German fellow, uh, who did an excellent job. Um, the numbers pop. You can see them clearly. And that's important. Well, hopefully Bear Flag is going to be that same way. And for starts, I insisted upon and I'm getting uh, one inch size counters. Well, if you have a one inch size game counter, not only is it easier to handle physically, but it's a heck of a lot easy, uh, easier to see everything. And that's to me is very, very important. When we met a couple of years ago and went through a play test, mm -hmm. you, you mentioned that you were heavily influenced by House Divided. Yes, and House Divided is the, which it's, it's just one of those things where I, it's like a game you play maybe every five years, <laughs> but the point is you play it, and uh, and they're just you know different circumstances. So I was visiting a friend in um, Colorado, and he suggested we play that that e one evening, and it just kind of it took me back. And then I he, I believe it's a phalanx out of 
Germany, which is now a defunct game company, had reprinted uh, A House Divided in fourth edition, and they used the large counters, and they had a larger, much larger map, certainly larger than the original. And I think it was considered to be the fourth edition of A House Divided. And so, um, you know, simple rules, uh, space to space, uh, the large counters that Phalanx had, and it was, to me that just said, this is the way to do it. And then my Civil War game project's gonna be the same way. It's gonna be uh, inch size counters, big map, and I'm trying to keep the uh, unit density down. The conflict in California is actually broken into two pieces, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. The, the initial the initial fighting. I mean, it's hard. You're hard pressed to find one American who got killed in the in the the, the, the initial takeover of uh, the state of California. Uh, now there's a, a bunch of uh, uh, hypotheticals, and and my game certainly has those hypotheticals in there. You know, if Vallejo had decided to uh, resist, uh, if the British had uh, intervened, and so there's a extremely unlikely chance that the British are going to intervene, but they can. And by having them also in the game, it uh, presents the game player uh, an opportunity to do more. And there was several things in the Mexican uh, military policy that uh, could have happened. So, for example, they had planned to send a regular regiment of uh, Mexican troops up to California before the war. And they actually paid ships to assemble at Acapulco and they had the troops available ready to go. And it was just a question of doing the final financing and sending them north to California when those troops decided they were gonna get involved in a coup back in Mexico City. <laughs> and so <laughs> everything went south, so to speak. And uh, so there's those type of possibilities. But then what happened was that the uh, occupation policies of the Americans in California were, um, so egregious that, uh, especially in uh, the Los Angeles area with a tiny garrison, I mean, you're you're garrisoning a a population of, uh, let's say roughly 800 uh, California slash California Americans, uh, California Mexicans, I should say, and uh, with 25 troops. And if you're being arrogant and uh, obnoxious in that process, uh, well, one thing led to another and the state rose. And uh, in that process, uh, the uh, California Mexicans um, put up a good, uh, good fight there for a while, and there was some real fighting that took place. But there again, uh, there weren't that many uh, casualties, and my uh, combat results table reflects that. So there's a lot of zero, zero results, but usually the side that is larger uh, will win and keep the space that the uh, battle took place in. Right, that's my uh, that's my recollection as well from the play test is that there's a lot of um, a lot of pushback and 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 pull and and advance uh, as opposed to to just the unit destruction and and that was the other interesting thing I think that you conveyed to me at the time is that that this was a very uh, a very small number of units but a very personal war right there were and it exactly. really is very much about the personalities more than it is large unit combat. Right. Well, and the thing, too, is that um, there were 
if my, I believe my memory serves me right on this. I, they think that there, and I say they, historians think that there were about 8,000 uh, Mexicans in California. And there was about 1,200 foreigners of which 400 of those foreigners were French, Swiss, German, English. So Gilroy, the city of Gilroy is actually uh, Gilroy Rancho in my game. Uh, uh, that's a, a brick. Uh, Brits operation, of course, Sutter's Fort was Swiss. Um, so you're dealing with a, a relatively small population, which, which there again, that's in some ways the uh, elephant in the room that people sometimes tend to forget is the American Navy off the coast basically had roughly at its height probably about 2,000 sailors. That's a quarter of the population of the state of California at that point. <laughs> You know, and of course, the Native Americans, that's almost laughable when we come to uh, historical uh, documentation. I mean, there's, there are some historians who have claimed that there were as few as 17,000 Native Americans in California at the time. And you have figures going up to 150,000. Well, that's quite a spread. And in my looking at it, I, I suspect, uh, and of course, most of them were concentrated in the northern part of the state, which was outside of all these actions. But I suspect there was probably about 100,000 uh, Native Americans in the state of California at the time. And the India, the well, the Native Americans do play a role in my game, though, albeit it's a minor one, usually uh, generated by random events. But there are a couple of uh, cards that can be played in the game that uh, can also influence uh, events with the Native Americans. Right, and, and the game is not necessarily card driven, but card assisted. Exactly, or the term I like, which somebody else came up with, is card enhanced. But yeah, card assistance definitely not card driven, and uh, I'm. That's the same way that my Civil War game is going to be. It's going to be uh, card assisted or enhanced, but not driven. And I have a problem with some of the way that the the card games. Uh, uh, to me, it's really important that you have to have cards available historically when they can be available and not available when they shouldn't be available from a historical standpoint. So uh, I've always approached the wargaming and, and game design from more of a historical standpoint than uh, some designers who are more into the, say the game aspects. To me, the, the history is just vital. Yeah, absolutely. It's why we play these games, isn't it? I think to a very, very large degree it is. I mean, you get to, I mean, you want to be Rommel in the desert. You want to be, uh, you know, General Stock, uh, well, Commodore Stockton uh, stomping up and down the coast or uh, General Vallejo. So let me tell you a wonderful little story about Vallejo, just so you can see why I'm focused on him in some ways. First of all, the man was uh, quite competent. And um, and he, he apparently... Uh, on a regular basis went to uh, baptisms of his illegitimate children. <laughs> as well as the fact, I think he had uh, 10 or 12 or 13 of his own children with his wife. Um, but uh, when he was locked up by the Bear Flaggers, and this was before uh, America and Mexico had actually gone to war, and the Bear Flag period was only lasted for you know a little over the best part of two weeks, but uh, they, the bear flaggers captured Vallejo and uh, at his home, 
in um, in the Vallejo area, but it was actually inland. It was Sonoma, the city of Sonoma, and um, he had a very loyal nearby Indian chief, uh, Native American chief, um, and I forget it off the top of my head his name, but uh, um, he got in contact with General Vallejo that night and said, hey, you wanna be rescued? I got a band right here, we're ready to do it. And of course the, the bear flaggers were you know, like a couple of dozen of men uh, occupying the, the uh, rancho up in uh, Sonoma. And uh, Vallejo said no. Well, one of the early die rolls in the game, and you only do it once, <laughs> is you roll to see if the uh, Chief Solano, that's his name, which is where we get the uh, name for Solano County. And anyway, uh, you have a chance of uh, getting Vallejo uh, liberated and to resist the bear flaggers slash Americans. So uh, that's uh, that's an interesting possibility. I mean, the fact that he actually turned them down, and and then the treatment of Vallejo over the next few months, uh, well, it was a bit shabby. Uh, he was locked up in the fort at uh, Sutter's Fort for a while, you know, literally in jail, so to speak. And uh, there was, I think, much that uh, they could have done back then, but they didn't. Sure, it was uh, it was a rough time on the frontier, wasn't it? <laughs> oh gosh, yes. Well, if you think about it too, I mean, it's it's uh, the Donner Party takes place during this period, and we're just on the eve of the discovery of gold, in, uh, 1848. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of interesting things going on in California. And if, if you ever get the chance, uh, if you can read some of the uh, period diaries uh, or accounts of people who were actually in California before and 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 before, during and up to the gold rush, it's 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 really quite fascinating. Right. Uh, you know, it seems like we study the population explosion of the gold rush and after a great deal, but really don't know much about what happened before. Right. And uh, and of course, the the impact of the population uh, coming into the state was just tremendous. There's a, in my game at the very end, there's a, uh, a regiment of and it's actually more like a legion because it had a, a, a small cavalry group and it also had a small uh, element of artillery um, that was recruited in the New York City area and then sent around the horn by ship to arrive in California. And like I say, it was at the very tail end of the, the, of the war, but it does factor in my game. But it was deliberately recruited to be young bachelors and Polk had this concept. I mean, uh, uh, Polk's, I've never read a biography of Polk, but he's a very interesting uh, man by just how he conducted this campaign and such. But um, this group of, this regiment was deliberately sent there so that after the war, they would stay there and marry the locals and populate the state with Americans. <laughs> so. Social engineering at its best. Yes, social, en social engineering by uh, the Democrat Party in uh, <laughs> the uh, um, 1840s. It's pretty amazing. That's true. So, you know, there's uh, there's another interesting unit in in that uh, conflict that is the only it's the only unit in the history 
of the U.S. Oh. military to have a religious affiliation, the, Mor the Mormon battalion, right? Yes, exactly. Um, uh, you know, uh, and as I mentioned in my design notes, uh, yeah, there's regiments in the Civil War and such that were predominantly Irish Catholics or, you know, whatever. Yes, but the only one that was officially, the, to my knowledge, and the, the, it's, it's claimed if you read any of the uh, uh, Mormon uh, battalions uh, studies was that uh, this um, um, uh, the Mormon batal battalions, which essentially there were two battalions, were sent out about 500 men, um, and they literally um, marched for them. You know, well, there's obviously some mounted troops and some mounted officers, but uh, it basically they marched <laughs> all the way to California. And actually, if you go to that little, um, there's a little Mormon. Um, I can't call it a temple, but it's uh, uh, it's in San Diego, where if you go in and they one of the claims is that, well, obviously, God was on the side of the Mormon battalion, because guess what? Uh, nobody died on that march. And uh, I, 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 well, I'm, I'm glad you believe that. But I think it was probably more just uh, good hygiene. <laughs> right, right. No, that's my uh, my friend claims that that's proof of divine intervention but there is a nice uh, there is a nice little museum in old town san diego uh, very yeah. small very small with a few relics uh, but an interesting story, so uh, mm -hmm. reflective of the period. So I think it's a well. And at your first convention that you held in San Diego it was like kitty quarter from where we were holding the convention. So it was a, it was extremely easy for me to walk over and see it. <laughs> Didn't realize how perfect the timing was. Yes. Now, yes. What, now, Jack, one of the funny stories for me that comes out of the play test it was the first time you and I had ever met. And uh, we sat down and I learned something about playtesting, which I'll share in a minute. But I remember after we played the game, I sat back and I said, you know, Jack, from the macro level, uh, I would just abstract the entire naval system. And when I said that, you laughed at me and you said, I don't think you know who I am and what I do. <laughs> I'm not abstracting anything in the naval system. <laughs> Uh, and that's absolutely correct. I was uh, <laughs> kind of like um, uh, astounded in some ways. Right, but, right. Uh, and the Civil War game is the same thing. The um, uh, probably about a sixth, one sixth of the game time and game counters. Uh, maybe not. Actually, the game counter for the Navy may actually be a little higher because you've got blockade stuff and and uh, things of that nature. But uh, about one-sixth of the game is going to be naval-orientated, which I think is a pretty good reflection of uh, what it was historically, uh, that the Union and Confederate Navy efforts um, probably took about uh, a sixth of the uh, energy and time and thought uh, during the war. It may have, a sixth may be a little high. Uh, it, 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 um, you know, it's... It's hard to say, but there's certainly going to be a naval aspect to it. In fact, uh, it's it's funny. I just came up with uh, an idea for the game um, two nights ago where uh, if you ever go to um, Columbus, Kentucky or Vicksburg, one of the things that made those two places particularly um, valuable to stopping uh, river traffic in the Union Navy uh, and it's, it's, it's in contrast to say island number 10 or for that matter, New Orleans 
is the high bluff. If you're mounting your artillery on a high bluff and it's plunging fire coming down on enemy ships, it first of all can be more destructive in uh, hitting the ships. And uh, alternatively, it's much more difficult for a ship on the water to fire up, up uh, a bluff to inflict any damage on the uh, Confederates. So anyway, I just came up with the idea that, um, are, are you familiar with Pursuit of Glory or uh, Paths of Glory where they have like a water barrier in certain- yeah. Yes, in absolutely. So there's a, well, I'm gonna take that water barrier or you know, um, and extend it along the river for Vicksburg and, and uh, Columbus. Um, so that there's not only the difficulty of firing uh, on a, a hill, so to speak, which because it's going to be a, a, a space that's uh, uh, marked as a, a hill or mountain. It's not a mountain, but it, it's it's a hill for uh, game uh, effects, and it gives you a benefit to be there defensively, well, guess what? There's gonna be an added bonus if you're attacking Columbus or if you're attacking um, Vicksburg. And I think that should that should be accurate. And I'm gonna be going down to Port Hudson here uh, next week, and I'm gonna scout that and, and see if maybe that place should also have that same benefit. And we'll just have to see by uh, eyeballing it. That's great. I've enjoyed watching your travels and your pictures of these battlefields around the, the area there. You know, the, the great thing that naval units provide in the Civil War and and what they do with Bear Flag Republic is they provide a very specific piece of story, right? That the units, we, we know them, we see the picture of the naval units, there's something very romantic about it. And I think it really enhances the game. And I think after the playtest, one of the things that struck me was you can playtest this by sending it to people and letting them play it and send you a written report. And I know a lot of people do that. But what I really learned by watching you go through a playtest with me was that you wanted to see the game through my eyes. And that's impossible to do remotely. So it was a terrific learning experience for me and something that I've done ever since is purely face-to-face playtest because... You learn so much about your game through that other person's eyes. Oh, amen. And it's it, to, to uh, just two points here. Uh, one is that um, as a game designer, I think sometimes you get to a point where you go, geez, I, I don't know if this game's going to be fun enough for people, you know? And right. so one of the most, uh, you, I guess you get so deep in the subject and you kind of maybe are, uh, and you know, getting nervous about what people will think of it, or how they'll, you know, how they'll accept it, or not. Um, so it's really been gratifying in my game design period to have had a tremendous number of people who said, "Hey, this is a really good game." You know, and I really enjoy playing it. You know, or the person who sits down and plays it six, eight, 10, 12 times, you know, the, to see a, a, uh, somebody playing Royal Navy uh, last week on Facebook for a game that's what, 30 years old, 25, 30 years old, uh, that was nice. But now here's something about remote play testing. One of the things that uh, I would never have picked up on is I sent a copy to a Mexican-American war uh, aficionado war gamer up in, um, I wanna say Minnesota. And it was Minnesota. And he played it and he got back to me and he said, Jack, we people in Minnesota, we don't have a clue where Gilroy is or San Juan Batista is 
or um, Solano, <laughs> Sutter's, even Sutter's uh, Fort. <laughs> and, you know, they know where Los Angeles is. And, of course, San Francisco in my game is Yerba Buena. It's not San Francisco because it still had its old name. And I, so what I did is I um, – where when you have like reinforcements come on the board and they're supposed to appear in such and such place or um, uh, uh, a horse unit, which uh, for the listener, a horse unit is basically we have a bunch of neutral horse uh, markers that come into the game uh, and somewhat randomly and, and, and sometimes when they're spe- specifically brought in. And either the Americans or the California slash Mexicans can get a hold of it get a hold of that neutral counter and we put numbers on the map for where those places were and of course you know one is at the north and the last number which i think you know 25 or whatever is down at the very bottom next to baja california and that was something that i would not have caught but as soon as the guy said it it was one of those things where the light bulb went on you know it's like oh you know what he's absolutely right Somebody in Georgia is not going to have a clue where some of these places are. <laughs> so, well, it's like Kathy, my my uh, wife. Um, um, she's never been to California in her entire life. Uh, so I, I can't expect her to know where places are. <laughs> you know, San Francisco and L.A. and maybe Santa Barbara. <laughs> well, that, you know, it really speaks to the benefit of diversity in the playtesting, right? That, that – uh... And, and I mean diversity in every possible measure, but you you get people from other places to look at your game and they're going to say, wait a minute, what about this? You know, Jack, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, given your wide and varied experiences, how the war game business has changed over the years. What are your observations on that? Well, you want let's talk about money for a moment. Absolutely. Um, I love talking about money. As a matter matter of fact, Jack, (laughs) we were setting up a time for this play test. And and so we can't go through this podcast without some political debate or or at least prodding. (laughs) But but we're setting up this podcast and you tell me that you're on Central Time. And I thought you were on the East Coast on on Eastern. And so I I asked if you were on Eastern or Central. And... (laughs) What was your response? Do you remember? Well, my response was, oh, that's typical Wall Street mentality. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know where middle America is. And, and by the way, I live on El Camino Real, so I don't live on Wall Street. But Yeah, um, no, I know that, but you've had a connection with Wall Street in the past. <laughs> Let's put it this way. You're more intimate with it than I am. <laughs> well, uh, the good and the bad. So so uh, thanks for that. I thought that was very funny. The But... Yes, I'd love to hear. Let's talk a little bit about the money and how that play, has played out. Sure. Um, well, in the old days, uh, and I'm talking 60s, 70s, and into the 80s, uh, the, the old saw was that um, if a game cost you $2 to manufacture, then you had to sell that game retail for 14. So it was a seven to one ratio. And when uh, Dungeons and Dragons came along uh, and uh, Gygax and uh, 
they actually increase that ratio to where that $2, well, actually probably I should use $1 because it was they're pretty much all just a, you know, booklets. They didn't have to deal with the game boards or pieces as much. But the um, that dollar was multiplied by 10 to become 10 to 1, okay? And of course, now the, the listener may be going, well, that, geez, that's incredible, those profits. Well, back in the old days, you would sell, uh, oh gosh, I'm gonna say three quarters or more, maybe uh, five, six of your production run would go to distributors. And we didn't have that many distributors, but um, depending on the size of the company and, and what you were producing, uh, you might have, in, like for example, Quarterdeck, which was a small game company, uh, my company, um, I think we had at the tops maybe 12 distributors, but they were taking the bulk of the product. Well, today there's virtually no distributors. Uh, there's a fair amount of direct sales from manufacturers to some of the few game stores that are out there. And surprisingly, there are a fair number of game stores out there, but there again, they don't wanna have, I mean, quite frankly, they don't wanna have a copy of Hitler Strikes North, um, a game on the invasion of Norway in 1940, because it's too obscure. And so, and that's one reason I'm doing the American Civil War game, because it's clear, <laughs> Guarantee you, Harold, it'll be my biggest seller. <laughs> the only thing that will be have sold more will be the original Bismarck from Avalon Hill, and of course that was that was back in the, a completely different era. Right. And when we now now if you sell a thousand or two thousand or three thousand copies of a game, that's phenomenal. Uh, what is it? The um, Mark Herman game, um, Empire of the Sun. I mean, I think they're up to seventy five hundred copies, and it's considered to be a, a, a bestseller. So, I mean, that's just the nature of uh, how much our market in some ways has shrunk. Well, anyway, to, to get to my point, I was talking with a game company here just last week and we were discussing things. And the modif the, uh, the modifier that they're now using to sell games, of which of course the vast majority are direct orders, um, you know, direct order mail order was uh, one to five. So if the game cost them a dollar, they would sell it for five. And uh, I hadn't heard that and it was, it was just really uh, took me aback. And then the other thing I found out of, uh, in terms of uh, sales, and it was really, you'll appreciate this Harold, um, January and February are the worst months for game sales uh, for, for game companies uh, such as GMT or uh, Compass. And the, um, Best months, of course, is the end of October going into the beginning of December, not Christmas, but the very beginning of December. In fact, the, the gentleman I was talking to, he broke it down. He said, Jack, there are really five quarters. I go, what, what do you mean there? He says, well, if you take your April, May, June sales and double it, that's what you're gonna get in the fourth quarter. So it's really kind of like a fifth quarter is <laughs> in there too. It's like there's two quarters. And, and, and the other point that, he, that was made to me, which I found interesting, was that the, the, the thing is, is that November to the very beginning of December, it's like Jack Green is buying a copy of your 1777 uh, S&T game, decision game for me, <laughs> for myself to put under the tree. 
because Kathy's not going to know which game to get. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just, you can't expect her to. But then when that first week of December comes, I got to buy a present for her and I got to buy a present for my daughter and I got to buy a present for this person. And so that's, that's, that's what the, this gentleman thought uh, was driving everything. And I find that pretty interesting. It is, it is curious. And, you know, I, I think that, uh, from my retirement a couple of years ago, I wanted to get involved in the business and I looked and pried apart every piece and the economics of each piece. And I've got to tell you, it's, it's a tough place to make money these days. Uh, the, the unit volumes are low and the risks associated with putting your capital into a large print run to reduce your, your incremental cost, uh, is tremendous. So, um, so, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to be paid on the uh, royalty side of this. And, um, you know, I don't, I think there are very few people that make subsistence money. You know, I think it's, it's a hobby for most participants. Oh yeah. No, I, I refer to my stuff as cigarette money though. I, you know, I don't smoke cigarettes, but I mean, right. uh, it, it's, um, no, and, and you, you lived in IV, so you don't need to tell us what you do smoke, Jack, but it, but it's, <laughs> it, but it's not a lot of money. There's no doubt. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, that's uh, there. There isn't, um, and you have to be really careful about it too. Um, I mean, Ty Bamba makes—he actually makes a living doing game designs and, and getting them published. Uh, well, bless his soul. Uh, you know, I would—I I mean, I couldn't do it. I mean, it's, it's especially the way I do games. I mean, I just—I put so much time in effort uh, when i used to write the books i figured uh, a book took two thousand hours to to write and um a game that's if it's really well researched uh is i think less than that uh the civil war game is probably going to take more because uh the, the simple fact for, for stars as I mentioned at the beginning of this discussion, that there were maybe 24 books on the war in California. Well, you could probably put two zeros and probably more <laughs> for the number of books on the Civil War. And the deal is, too, is that when you're dealing with something like that, I'm, I have a General Bragg, for example. No, McClellan is a better example. If I have General McClellan in the game and I'm giving him, let's say, most likely four factors, okay, uh, reflecting his... Uh, ability to get up in the morning and do something, to rallying the troops, to conducting an, in a battle, you know, what would defensively or offensively, what he's capable of and what he's not capable of, or whatever, and, you know, die roll modifier, whatever. Um, you know that whatever numbers you pick, there's going to be a half dozen really smart, really well-educated Civil War buffs who play these games who are going to say, Jack, where did you come up with that? That's insane. That's nuts. You should, he should be a thus and such. And you just, you got to go, just got to roll with the punches knowing you're going to get punched. <laughs> right, right. No, I, I agree. And I, you know, you, you have to go through this in naval warfare, right? I mean, Mike Berticelli and I started off working on uh, this tank duel game and, and mm -hmm. tanks, tanks and ships are the same, right? That there are people with extreme knowledge of individual uh, <laughs> oh, ships <yeah>. in grand <laughs> detail. And, uh, and, you know, I, I guess I, I also, I'm, I'm much more forgiving uh, about, you know, whether a number should be a three or a four in a war game. 
uh, <laughs> than than I used to be. And maybe maybe it's designing a game makes you much more forgiving. Uh, but but uh, you know, you Jack, you've done a good deal of business with the Japanese and the Chinese as well, and that's a curiosity to me. How how is uh, how is their perspective on the business different? Well. Um, there's certainly, I had uh, my early experience with the Japanese uh, and Hobby Japan and Post Hobby, which of course, uh, they're essentially no longer uh, players as I understand it. Um, and and that, that's a whole story in itself, which if you want to get into a, you know, a rehash, if we can. But I think more interesting is what's been going on uh, currently. So several years ago, um, I was contacted by uh, Japanese command, which was essentially what had happened is uh, the command magazine that we know from XTR, which has been defunct now for, gosh, I don't know, 10 years at least. Uh, they licensed the uh, command uh, title name to uh, a firm in Japan. And uh, they've continued to publish and are publishing today. And actually in the 90s, they republished my destroyer captain and my Royal Navy in the magazine, um, paid promptly, uh, uh, did a good job, uh, no issues. And um, then about, like I say, four years ago, I guess it was, five years ago, Toshi, from who's the only paid employee at uh, command, and he's primarily one of those guys who you know, makes sure the games go out and makes sure the, the components are in correctly. And he's not so much of the editor and he's not so much uh, a game designer, though he's done a little bit of game design. And he's in his 40s. Um, and uh, he contacted me and make a long story short, one thing led to another and I've become fast friends with the editor uh, who came over to visit a couple of years ago as well, uh, Yoshiro Nakaguro who also has a um, vanity press, so to speak, his own own little uh, mini company of bonsai, not bonsai, but bonsai like the little miniature ferns and trees. Hmm. And, and uh, his longest, his biggest production run is 400 and sometimes less. Uh, and he, um, that's the game I recently brought in the uh, Great East Asia Coal Prosperity Sphere. That was from Bonsai. And he uh, shipped me 72 of his print run of 400. And I asked him about reprinting at one point. He says, Jack, I'd rather design a new game. So this, uh, Yoshiro is just absolutely prolific in the game designs that he's done, both in command as well as um, his own game, uh, you know, Vanity Press, so to speak, and elsewhere. Actually, Lock and Load has one of his games, The Pacific War, out of uh, Colorado. So, um, the, the average age of the Japanese war gamer is in their 40s. The average age of the Chinese war gamers is 20 to 30. Uh, I'm not going to guess what the average age is of the board gamer in the United States, but it's certainly over 50. <laughs> right. <laughs> and we, there was one guy who I just saw his uh, Facebook um, point that uh, 
uh, Frank Chadwick's doing this new Europa series type of games of uh, and the Russian front is close to being published and the Mediterranean is next and uh, Alan Emmerich who's uh, at victory uh, point is uh, doing the publishing and he's touting it and it's coming along and this guy uh, emailed him and says, please hurry, I'm 73. <laughs> <laughs> And it was sort of like, well, I can understand that, yeah. So, <laughs> right, right. Um, so anyway, there's the age uh, difference, and which makes the Asian market uh, um, interesting. Um, and the other thing that goes along with that is the, the numbers are still small. So Command Magazine in Japan, I believe they do about a thousand copies. Now, when they did Iron Bottom Sound 3, which I imported, uh, I brought in and we're, uh, we're almost sold out. We'll be sold out in the fall uh, worldwide. Uh, the Japanese are sold out. And um, so I brought in about 400 copies. Well, when they did the print run on that, instead of doing 1,000 copies, they did, a, I'm not positive of the number, but probably 12 to 1,300 copies. So again, we're, in terms of mass market and the size of the countries, I mean, it's minuscule. I mean, it's it wouldn't even register on a in a, uh, on Wall Street. <laughs> so uh, the Chinese market, which again you're talking about a, a country that's close to a billion people, if not, um, their print run is either five hundred or a thousand, which again is tiny. But it is going out to twenty and thirty year olds, which uh, I find uh, exciting. And, uh, and and all the horror stories we've always heard about uh, dealing with China and such. Um, it's been very interesting to me. Is that um, I've been dealt, I've been treated extremely fairly. In fact, it was what was what was fascinating is uh, Hitler Strikes North, which was the first game published uh, of my design in China. Uh, and, and where my game is a Ziploc here, theirs is actually boxed. Um, they contacted uh, Yashushi in Japan and they wanted to know if they could do a cooperative uh, project working with me. And Yashushi basically did all the negotiating. I, I suddenly he's like he got in contact with me and says, well, we want to send you some money by PayPal. And um, how much do you want? And I told him what my number was. And the week later, it showed up in PayPal. I didn't know where it came from. And I go, where did somebody come from? You know, I mean, I had to, I had to uh, actually uh, uh, contact the Japanese. I said, now, did you pay me twice by accident? I said, no, 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 no. This was this is the Chinese uh, uh, license fee. And I said, oh, okay, well, that sounds good to me. And uh, since then, uh, Gavin Hugh at uh, War Drum Games, uh, he's now my nephew and I'm Uncle Jack. And um, <laughs> and if that relationship continues, and, and Gavin's going to be over here next year, knock on wood, for um, oh gosh, uh, the uh, Gen Con, uh, he's going to apparently show up for that um, uh, to hopefully show his first product that's um, both English and Chinese, and he's doing Iron Bottom Sound in the fall, uh, which means it'll be a Chinese version, and he's doing it in both English and uh, Chinese. So there's a possibility that when the Japanese print run runs out, I'm actually gonna bring in, I don't know, 100, maybe 150, uh, 200 copies of Iron Bottom Sound if it continues to sell. 
And I think that's exciting. Uh, and then the uh, they're also taking, as of last week, uh, my Tsushima game, which is being redone by Banzai um, as um, uh, Togo. We've uh, added the battles of 1904 in with Tsushima. And, of course, I've made changes. Uh, I've learned more. Uh, there were mistakes made in, uh, back 25, 30 years ago that sure. – uh, I've simply read and I know to do better. So um, it's an exciting time for me in that regards. It's, it's, it's funny, Harold. I'm going to have more games published this year, uh, some being reprints like uh, MacArthur, uh, than at any time in my life. I mean, there, there, there should be four new titles of mine out. Well, that's it's terrific, Jack, and, and as it should be. I mean, we should be, we should be sharing your stuff. Around the world, it will only make for a better, uh, for a better, kinder, gentler place. I'm sure. <laughs> the, you know, and and Jack, I, I there's one other topic I want to cover uh, before we get off the off the call, mm-hmm. um, and and then of course I have a few informal questions to ask. But when you lived in Isla Vista, and and uh, you know, for those that don't know Isla Vista, it's a very I don't know. What do we call it? A progressive community that abuts UC Santa Barbara? <laughs> okay. All right. I'll, I'll give the definition of Iowa. <laughs> Please. It's the um, college town for the University of California at Santa Barbara. So UC Santa Barbara's uh, uh, student ghetto. And I referred to it uh, as a rural Berkeley when I was there in the 70s. And I actually lived there three different times, so I was really taken by it. And then at a certain point, I simply outgrew it. Uh, I mean, you just, you, when you're 28 or 29 and you're talking to a 19 or 20 or 21 year old and Vietnam is distant history that something my, their older brother was involved in or, or knew about and, you know, th- and then disco was coming on anyway, things change. If you don't understand the location, it literally is on the ocean. Right. And if you go down to the beach, you will get tar on your feet, but it's naturally occurring tar for the most part. It's <laughs> and, not from the and oil. A, a very beautiful coastline. I, you know, that UC Santa Barbara area is, is phenomenal. So so while you were in this progressive community, you're writing in the 70s and 80s, I guess, maybe 70s, you're writing a... Right. I had a column in Europa magazine. And what was interesting about Europa is it had a very small circulation. It was, uh, oh, I'm going to say 150 people. And this was uh, uh, Walter Luke. Lucas. In fact, Walter Lucas, bless his soul, he's since passed long time, some, some years ago. But the uh, Europeans have an award named after him. And he was in uh, Basel, uh, Switzerland. I did get to visit him in 1977. And I hooked up and his, his Europa, I'm gosh, Harold, I'm going to guess it probably... Probably there were more than there weren't 24 copies. I mean, 24 uh, issues. It was less than that I, that appeared, and and it, and it, and each one got thicker and thicker. It was on this, this uh, grainy, uh, tan uh, European style paper, and it was oversized, kind of like a legal size. Uh, um, and if you run across them, they're collector items. But I had a column there for. Oh, six, seven issues called The View from Isla Vista. And basically, I did game reviews and I you know, talked about uh, different things that I saw going on. And uh, uh, anybody who knows me uh, well knows that uh, I tend to 
poke around and, and if there's something I haven't done before, I oftentimes will do it. I, as Kathy will attest, uh, uh, both she, uh, she and myself have already been uh, eating some foods the last uh, couple of months that uh, neither of us have ever had before. Just to, well, especially living in the South. I mean, there's there's uh, a cuisine down here that uh, uh, we're not familiar with. In fact, actually for the first time, I think in my life, uh, we were in, um, Opelika, uh, Alabama, and I'm horribly pronouncing it, but uh, the on the luncheon menu were frog legs. Well, I did take a pass on that, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so Jack, the, you know, the view from Isla Vista, there's a famous series of columns that you wrote uh, on a topic that I've become very interested in. So I'd like you to discuss it a little bit, which is, the topic of, of gender diversity in specific in war games. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and the one thing you have to understand about uh, this Europa magazine that only had like 100, 150 uh, copies that went out. The copies went to the movers and the shakers. The uh, Tom Shaw got it. Frank Chadwick got a copy of it. Uh, all the game companies subscribed to it. And it was kind of a clearinghouse for uh the ideas that were what was going on at the top of uh, the hobby industry back in those days. So uh, I did a, a column in there on the uh, women in wargaming, and it was sort of like throwing it out, saying, "Well, what's why do we have uh, why are we ninety eight percent male and and two percent maybe uh, female, and 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 one and a half percent of that uh, number is uh, the wife of a wargamer." Back to the, the column, when that column came out, Walter Lukas got in touch with me a couple of months after it appeared. He said, Jack, we've had more letters, and it was you know, 20 or 25, but essentially that was 20, 25%, 30% of the, uh, or well, whatever, 20% of the uh, subscribers had sent a letter back. And of course, the most famous one was uh, Gary Gygax, who basically had a very short one, which was that women ruin war games. And it was like, whoa, that's revealing. And of course, the thing too, you gotta understand about Gary Gygax is when he first introduced uh, uh, Dungeons and Dragons, one of the very first origins, I'm gonna say it was, uh, it was one at Staten Island. And I think it was the third one that was ever held. So that would have been what, 1978, uh, 77, right in there. Uh, that uh, he uh, had his wife and daughter uh, scantily clad uh, at his booth uh, selling uh, the new brand new Dungeons and Dragons. So he was basically exploiting his wife and daughter to sell the game. And by the way, I might add, it was very effective. <laughs> well, but, you know, I, I, it, it's, it's interesting to me, number one, how much he missed the boat, right? But but number two, compared to the war game community, the role playing game community is much more diverse. Yes. Than the war gaming community today, right? So if you if you look around, you know you go to the role playing night at the game store. If you look in the role playing groups at the at the game conventions, it's a much more diverse crowd than we have in war gaming. Well, and you can I think extend that also to the euro gaming uh, group. I mean. Uh, I used to play every Sunday with uh, 
Larry Hoffman and his wife and, and, and uh, uh, Beth and the, the four of us would play Settlers of Catan all the time, a you know, classic Euro game. I mean, you could almost define the Euro movement on uh, Catan. So, uh, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I, I always, there's, there's two things that always rattle around in my brain and there's no way to prove it. But one is that um, wargaming, first of all, it's the topic, you know, and military stuff. I mean, you, you, you don't find too many uh, women, uh, women who are scratch builders of uh, T-34 tanks. Whereas it's that's pretty much a, a male thing, and um, you know the whole aspect of war in the military is obviously more of a male thing, I would argue. Um, but there's another part to it too, and that's the hunting aspect. I've always thought that because the men tend to be more the the hunters of the two genders, that that was a, an aspect to uh, gaming. Because I mean, let's face it, we love to kill our enemy game counters, you know? I mean, <laughs> yeah, to have Rommel and, and Patton uh, fighting it out is, uh, I think, one of the drivers in our, our hobby. Right, you know, the, the, uh, the, so to say that a different way in my household, so I have two college-age daughters and my wife, and, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get them to play a game from time to time. It's not their favorite pastime, but they'll, they, for example, Father's Day. Uh, they're planning. They're planning on playing a game. That's their offer, right? So they know yeah. how much I enjoy playing with them. But they uh, they prefer the cooperative over a conflict. And and to me, it's also interesting when you think about Dungeons and Dragons uh, and role playing. Role playing is largely cooperative. Uh, that that you have a character that works with other characters to achieve a goal. Uh, on the other hand, you and I will sit down across the table and we'll play. Bismarck too, uh, with the intention of of you know doing something bad to the other party uh, mm -hmm. that that you're playing with. So, I, I think that's to me that's part of it, right? I, I I feel like it. I my my worry is that that culturally we may do things that perpetuate it, and uh, you know I think that's we need to talk about it to prevent that. But uh, that's the subject of another podcast I'm working on. So we'll uh, we'll table that, but but very interesting to see that you were addressing these issues, and I know how socially conscious you are, and uh, and I I just think it's great that you did that in the seventies and eighties and asked those questions. I think we should be asking them more. So Jack, let me move on. I I want to ask you a few informal questions, sure, uh, to kind of close things out. Uh, I gave you a little bit of a warning, so. Uh, we expect some excellent answers from you. Um, but, but, you know, I think the first is, uh, what kind of music do you listen to? Well, reggae is my favorite and older reggae, uh, remains. And, you know, you, when you've seen Bob Marley twice, <laughs> third world, Jimmy Cliff, I mean, you know, there's a long, long line. People don't listen to me. You got to call me, be separate. If you want to for me, you're not to be quick. You just did see so Jack, let's talk a little bit about video medium, not necessarily TV or movies or whatever you watch on YouTube, but what kind of things do you, do you enjoy watching? Um, I like, I like to watch a lot of movies. Um, 
uh, Kathy and I have been uh, just started sharing some of uh, uh, movies together since we were, did a little bit of a, a honeymoon that was uh, Civil War orientated. Uh, we watched The Horse Soldiers again <laughs> with uh, John Wayne and uh, Holden in it. Jack, let's talk a little bit about what you read. Maybe uh, if you could give us a few references for the conflict in California. Well, first of all, I've been reading a ton of stuff on the civil, the American Civil War, and I've been working my way from the um, far west, the Trans-Mississippian Department. Uh, so we're talking Missouri, Arkansas, Louisiana, and, and what, uh, what small role the tech that Texas played in the uh, Civil War, as well as the far west, uh, being um, New Mexico territory, and then. The, the, along the Mississippi, uh, so I'm right now looking at uh, the Civil War in Mississippi, the Civil War in Louisiana, uh, Alabama, and the Civil War. These are three books that are right next to each other to be read. Um, and or you know, in, in the case of a lot of reading, you, you sometimes suck what you want out of it, and you've come to the conclusion, and you can put it down. And, and then, of course, there are other ones like uh, Shelby Foote's uh, three volumes where you just read from cover to cover. Um, just because of what the, what they offer. So I've pretty much um, been very uh, rifle shot uh, in my reading uh, because this, you know, you, again, it gets back to what we talked about at the very beginning of this discussion, which is you and I know that when you do a game on the Bear Flag Republic, there's going to be 20 people who are going to argue with you about uh, values that you gave to uh, Sloat or Stockton or Vallejo. Whereas if you do a game on the Civil War, there's going to be 2,000 people who are going to be commenting on the values you gave for Grant McClellan or uh, Bragg. So uh, those are all um, – elements. But in terms of the Bear Flag Republic, there's really two books that I can uh, recommend. One is Neil Harlow's California Conquered. And uh, it's War and Peace on the Pacific. It has a good uh, discussion of the pre-war situation and, and goes through everything that transpired, has a lot of maps, which are always good, I think. Um, the one thing that's kind of sad about it is that and I've run into the same problem as an author. Uh, the publisher comes to you and says, okay, you've got 300 pages to write this topic on. Same thing with the game design. You've got 120 game counters and a, you can't have a map larger than 22 by 24. So Carlos uh, started writing the book. And I think what happened is that when he came to the very end, when there's a uh, uh, Mexican slash California revolt in the Bay Area uh, around San Jose and uh, ending in a, a, a minor battle of about 400 folks on either side, uh, which back then was you know pretty big, um, that uh, he, he, he hit his limit. So there's like really good discussion up until you get to Northern California and there's like about five pages <laughs> and that's it. But the other one, then you get it online, which uh, is really helpful is, and I can't think of the guy's first name, but it's the Bancroft history of California and Bancroft turned out a tremendous number of books 
on the history of the Far West. He did one, I think, on the Aztecs as well. And I think also, for that matter, the Incas and the Conquistadors. And it, it, for much of his life, he basically had a battery of, of writers that worked with him. And he put his name and stamp on it. But you can go online and you go to volume, I believe, uh, four, five, and six of the History of California by Bancroft. Uh, pop it up on your screen and read it. And it's still, to this day, invaluable. A ton of detail. I mean, just think about it. For you know, three volumes. Best best part of three volumes devoted to say, uh, 1840 to 1850. Um, and uh, uh, these are not small, thin volumes either. I might add. So, fully footnoted as well. That's great. Yeah, perfect for your research. So, Jack, what about games? What have you been playing when you're not in design mode? Every uh, Wednesday and every Thursday, I go online on Vassal, which, by the way, the Vassal people, the if they ever brought uh, the Charles Roberts Awards back into existence, the, the Vassal people should get a dozen awards for what they've done. I mean, it's just, I mean, talk. Of, I mean, it's just selfless uh, gratitude. And, and selfless uh, love on their part of all the folks who uh, participated in the Vassal program. I mean, I'm just wish I could shake all of their hands. But having said that, um, I go online uh, every Wednesday and every Thursday. On Wednesday, I play uh, Harry Rowland of, of Australian Design Group in Australia. And uh, every Thursday, I play Larry Hoffman in Paso Robles, California. And uh, we have played between us three probably 90 hundred uh, times of uh, pursuit of glory from GMT and uh, it's uh, basically paths of glory on steroids um, it's a the rule book is a, an excellent example of how not to write a rule book um, and it's just an absolutely uh, fabulous game. As I was telling uh, uh, Kathy, when I get the rest of my library at our new home, uh, which we should be into by uh, early next month, if not the end of this month, um, when I get the rest of my library from California, uh, I probably have, oh, I'm going to say probably not 24, but uh, certainly over a dozen books on uh, the Middle East and World War One, just because it's been a, such a fascinating game and, and the game design and the history that was put into it is just absolutely phenomenal. Uh, so I don't know if you know the designer, I can't think it's stock, uh, but it's a, it's a father-son team. And the father has at least a master's in um, foreign affairs and uh, and history uh, and it's his specialty was Turkey uh, the Ottoman Empire and it the game reflects that in so many ways and then between him and his son play testing it and perfecting it it just uh, uh, it, it's just one of the most incredible games I've ever run across you know you mentioned games so um, let me just say that, uh, well, obviously House Divided, we've already gone over that as uh, an important milestone. Or, um, and then an, an, uh, um, another one, another series that I consider to be some of the best games ever produced are the uh, 18XX Railroad Games, of which GMT recently published one, which was just a beautiful, beautiful book. 
uh, game, excuse me. And um, the fact that you have the stock market, you have the technology and how it um, uh, progresses and changes and how it can impact your railroad companies. And then of course, just the building of the tracks and the uh, how the cities play out, it's uh, all very, very helpful. And I've always found that game players of the railroad series um, there'll be one person who's like an expert at laying track and knowing how to do track. And there's another person who plays the stock market really, really well. Or another person who knows how to screw another person. By right. The other guy that knows how to buy all the, all the engines of a certain type and put me out of the game. I've seen. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but it's uh, just a phenomenal series. So, uh, you know, that's probably give you a sense. And then, of course, Settlers of Catan. I've played that, uh, like I say, every Sunday for uh, 10 years. <laughs> yeah, it, it's great. And it, it uh, that one survives, right? It, it It's perfect for bringing new people in or people that don't want a game uh, anything more complex. You can play it and, and even, you know, even I can have some... Uh, some fun with the trading and the and the different strategies and a different map and calculating probabilities it's a it's addicting to some degree isn't it and and jack will in, in closing i want to thank you for taking the time to talk and uh you know i just want to reinforce you've been an inspiration i've learned so much from you and uh not just on games and play testing but also how to treat people and your kindness and uh, it' very exciting for me to get you on the podcast. And I have a thousand other questions, so we'll uh, we'll have to reconvene at a later date if you're amenable. Well, sure. And uh, first of all, uh, thank you for your kind remarks. Uh, you know, Mark Ruggio, who many of us know in the game hobby, who's a, a gamer uh, in California, and uh, he, uh, all about three months ago, he goes, you know, Jack's been in the hobby and he's been so nice to people and stuff uh he goes well we should have a special award to give to jack or something and i i i posted back to him i said mark look the hobby has been so good to me i mean i've literally um well i i met my my wife right now because i moved to vicksburg so i could do a civil war game also i could have my social security check go a lot further. Uh, so, but and the other thing is, it gave me my my career. I mean, I had done uh, in my twenties and early thirties um, jobs ranging from uh, working in the print industry, uh, working at the March of Dimes, uh, uh, working and making at a factory making plastic bottles, working for two solar companies. Uh, to falling into my career as a uh, soil and uh, concrete inspector um, and being a partner in a company for 10 years because the war gamer I played with, uh, Richard Post, decided to, he needed another body and I just gotten laid off at the solar firm because they were going out of business and uh, getting hired and having ending up with a 30-plus year career. So I've... I mean, there's been so many things that have happened to me that have been cool and beneficial, like going to Douglasville and learning what the South was like and what a summer in the South was like uh, because of wargaming, uh, living in Baltimore, 
um, you know, meeting Randy Reed and getting to know him on our, uh, you know, and Mick Yule and, and uh, Richard Hamlin and that whole crew. And uh, no, I, 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 I may have regrets about a lot of things, but one thing is that the gaming hobby has uh, uh, been good to me. <laughs> and right now, I, by the way, Harold, I do make money on every game that I deal with now because of, I, I can't afford not to. <laughs> Well, I hear you, Jack. And thanks again for taking the time. It was always a pleasure. All right. You take care, buddy. So that's a wrap for this podcast. I'll publish some notes and references on my website, conflictsimulations.com. Join the Herald on Games Guild on BoardGameGeek and leave me a comment with your thoughts and ideas. Thanks to the San Diego-based band Subliminal Trip for their intro and outro music. Check them out on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook. I'll close with a special thanks to Jack Green. And that's it for me. As always, I'm busy abstracting the naval game, and I'll be back soon.